bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So I've been covering lots of stories over the last year about the uh, the conservation concerns over salmon and steelhead um, populations in the Pacific off the west coast of British Columbia. So recently, the uh, federal fisheries minister, Bernadette Jordan, made an announcement that the federal government's taking steps towards long-term reductions in fishing pressure on the salmon stocks of greatest conservation concern and their significant commercial fishing salmon closures coming for the 2021 season. Uh, Apparently about 60% of the commercial salmon fisheries uh, in British Columbia will uh, be affected uh, this coming season. The federal government also announced that it's going to be um, developing a federal um, funded fish commercial fishing license buyback program. So commercial fishers on the West Coast that are ready to to call it quits or that might go bankrupt because of this, um, they may have some buyback options available through the federal government. So the decline in salmon um, is not just a west coast of Canada, British Columbia, Pacific Ocean kind of uh, concern. The global commercial industry catch on salmon in 2020 was at an all-time low record. So worldwide, the commercial fishing industry on salmon is in, in the decline. Greg Taylor, a fisheries Um, biologist with Watershed Watch Salmon Society in British Columbia released this statement about the federal fisheries um, commercial fishing closure announcement. It is a bold and courageous decision made necessary by the cascading impacts of the climate emergency on salmon and the ecosystems they inhabit. But it is also a declaration of past failures, failure to implement our highly regarded national policies, failure to manage fisheries sustainably, and failure to make the difficult decisions when it most counted. Tragically, commercial fishers will pay the price for our collective failure to address climate change, to adapt forest, land use, and water management practices in recognition of climate change and cumulative impacts, and to manage fisheries with precaution and according to established national and international policies. One of the things I'm not completely clear on researching is how this announcement by the federal government will uh, affect indigenous commercial fishing operations. So, for example, in British Columbia this spring, the Supreme Court of BC uh, reaffirmed cases that have been in front of the courts off and on since 2003 with the Nuchalna uh, Nation and their right to fish salmon commercially and sell them. Um, That um, court decision reaffirmed um, indigenous rights to fish salmon commercially and sell them um, onto the open market. So I'm not sure uh, how this decision by the federal government uh, will uh, impact that. Uh, Based on reading some of the court decisions, uh, my interpretation is that the recent um, announcement to close commercial salmon fishing on the West Coast will not impact um, indigenous commercial fishing. 
I assume indigenous people in the commercial fishing industry are as concerned as anybody about uh, salmon stocks with conservation concerns. And um, I'm hoping that they're working with the federal government to develop um, conservation uh, plans to have an indigenous commercial fishery that still um, takes into consideration the, the, the conservation concern of some of these stocks. So if the fish aren't there, uh, I mean, they can't be caught, but, um, you know, if any additional fishing uh, is going to impact um, endangered uh, fish populations, then I'm sure the Indigenous uh, commercial fishing industry is going to come out with some sort of um, sustainability plan for that. So I've also covered last, uh, last year about um, the big bar um, landslide on the Fraser River. Um, so two years ago, there was a, a, a big section of a cliff on the Fraser River, um, about 75,000 cubic meters of rock um, let go and um, basically blocked the Fraser River um, just north of Lillooet. And it apparently created like a five meter high waterfall and uh, sockeye and Chinook salmon couldn't get past it to get into the, uh, their spawning grounds farther up this, the Fraser River and into the tributaries of the upper Fraser. So there's been this massive effort um, been going on the last couple of years of um, building roads down there and trying to create structures and stuff to allow salmon to get by on their own. So over the course of last winter, um, they had finished uh, the work on widening um, of a man-made structure along uh, the shore, which is basically a natural fishway. So what they did uh, along the shore by, by the, the um, landslide dam is they, they placed rock into the river um, so that it changed the current because uh, that was the problem with the landslide is is uh, the current was so rapid that the fish just couldn't didn't have the energy or the, or the power to get through this um, um, really fast water that was going over over the uh, uh, the landslide rock so they created this these structures along the shore that alters um, the velocity of the water and creates um, resting structures so the fish can actually get right up against the the cliff walls and and then just scoot their way from boulder to boulder to boulder and kind of like uh, get around this big landslide. So um, been a lot of work, hundreds and millions of dollars been, been spent there, but uh, it sounds like, um, and the runs will be already on their way uh, past there right now as, as I'm talking, that they've got um, some really good structures in place that salmon can get uh, past and they're expecting uh, a huge increase in the number of fish that make it. Uh, past the big bar landslide up to their spawning grounds this year. So, so there's this company in Toronto that makes high-end, fashionable winter jackets. The company's called Canada Goose, and they make these uh, these big parkas, uh, kind of based on uh, Inuit. Um, traditional designs, but they're they're high end fashion. Um, goose down filled coyote fur trim around the hoods. Um, they're sold um, in Canada and the United States, uh, and these coats go for like thousands and thousands of dollars. And my understanding is is like this is not like a a, a work coat, you know, for people working in the Ar Arctic 
it's high fashion. Uh, it's a fashion statement um, to be, you know, wearing one of these Canada goose fur jackets, you know, walking down the street of Banff in, in the middle of the wintertime, um, kind of a prestige status sort of thing. So anyways, um, the company Canada Goose recently made an announcement that in 2022, it's going to stop using coyote fur to trim the hoods of these uh, these big parkas. And that's primarily been based on the feedback that it's getting from its younger customer base, the Gen X and the Gen Zs. Uh, are basically saying they don't want real fur on their luxury coats. So I kind of find this quite ironic um, that that's how the younger generations um, are looking at this is it's okay to buy, you know, these these coats that are made from synthetic products and, you know, and whatnot and um, just just for fashion, but somehow... That's morally okay, but the fact that it's um, supporting, you know, trappers and indigenous trappers in the far north uh, and in the United States as well, um, that the use of real fur on these coats is somehow not socially or morally acceptable, but um, luxury coats, synthetic luxury coats are, are still... Uh, within moral bounds for the younger generation. So anyways, there's been a kind of a huge outcry um, from various trapping organizations uh, in Canada sort of um, objecting kind of to the attack on on the use of uh, real fur. Ultimately, real fur is probably the most sustainable uh, clothing product that we have, um, naturally grown and um, biodegradable. But I guess that's not in keeping with what customers uh, are asking for in the moral ethical shopping world. And so Canada Goose Fur is uh, no longer going to be using real fur uh, on their Canada Goose coats starting in 2022. When the company was asked whether or not they would use synthetic fur um, to replace uh, so the coat still had the same look, they kind of... Um, my interpretation is they kind of like skirted around the issue and just said, you know, something along the lines that they're committed to, you know, using um, sustainable uh, products in the manufacture of, of its clothing. But it didn't actually, the company didn't actually say if they would or would not be using synthetic fur. As you can imagine, that probably opened up a whole moral debate right there. So in the uh, uh, in and around the, the town of Banff and Banff National Park in Alberta, um, biologists uh, working for the national parks uh, have been reporting a, a decline in the elk population around uh, the town of Banff. Um, they've seen a decline um, of about 190 uh, elk uh, from the spring of 2019 to 148 this spring. The cow-calf ratio was down um, to 13%. Uh, The cow-calf ratio in 2019 was 29%. So a huge, huge decline in calf um, survival in and around uh, the community of Banff. So the the biologists in the national parks are saying that the higher uh, elk mortality is due to human causes, um, including being hit by trains 
and um, natural deaths due to lower calf survival um, due to predation. So they are reporting in Banff National Park in and around the town of Banff an increased amount of predation and carnivore activity. Uh, wolf pack that's hanging out close to the town. Uh, recently, in the last week or two, there was a, a grizzly bear uh, run down a calf elk in front of a bunch of golfers on the golf course and killed it and drug, drug it off. So, I mean, this is the, the kind of the strange part of... Banff of this blend of being a multi-million dollar tourist destination, huge economics from bringing millions of people into the national park and shopping in the town of Banff with this national parks are for conservation and wildlife and setting nature aside and not having logging and mining and hunting in them. Um, but they're having to actively manage and deal with the repercussions of human and humans in this ecosystem, um, maybe more than out on the, uh, you know, the regular working land base. Uh, in, in 1999, the town of Banff de- declared itself an elk-free zone. They no longer wanted elk in the town because elk were mowing people down and, and, and that sort of thing. So they put the big fencing system uh, around the town of Banff. Um, the report was in in the 1990s that they were seeing unnaturally high elk numbers uh, in in and around the town of Banff, which is kind of interesting because, you know, here we are a national park that's set aside so nature can do its thing, and we're saying that the numbers of elk are unnatural. Um, so that's kind of weird. Again, this is kind of a bizarre part of national parks. Um, it is a actively managed uh, environment just like you know every other area of the land base is so they actually have an elk management strategy and they have a goal of a hundred elk in and around the core zone around the community of Banff so currently they're uh, about 150 elk uh, around the the town of Banff, so they're still exceeding what the national parks want for the numbers of elk around Banff, so they're probably quite happy that grizzly bears are mowing elk down on the golf courses because um, they uh, still got too many according to the national parks elk management strategy. So, I mean, if you think national parks are just a hands-off, um, let nature do its thing, not at all. Uh, the Bow Valley Banff National Park, um, you know, even through Canmore outside the National Park. Uh, I went through there recently and, <laughs> you know, it has got to be about the furthest thing from, you know, a natural environment that you can get. Um, you know, four lane freeways, 12 foot high fences, um, you know, it's just every pullout there is just hundreds and hundreds of people and cars and every trailhead there was dozens of cars parked with people hiking up the trails and stuff like it's it it's it's a human playground you know and that's the way i see especially banff national park being so close to calgary it's a human playground um and it has more to do with people um i mean there's a paved trail between bike trail between canmore and banff um, kind of bizarre, you know, that, uh, you know, we're laying down pavement and oil product. Um, and then at the same time, we're, you know, conservationists are talking about the impacts of fossil fuel use and, you know, on the environment and climate change and stuff, but we're actually paving, 
you know, so people can ride, you know, ride bikes back and forth between these two commun communities. So yeah, it's a national park, but in my opinion, it's a people park. Uh, it's people first. Recreation is the industry and it's an industrial scale operation of recreation, multi-million dollar um, commercial operations in the town of Banff. And man, the wildlife seemed to be taking a huge hit uh, in the national park. Grizzly bears getting run over on the railroad tracks uh, this spring. Wolf run over on the railroad tracks. Um, you know, these big, huge fences. It's really, really sad to drive through the national parks. I've been driving through all of these parks, traveling back and forth. Um, when I lived in various places of the province since I was a little kid and to drive through those very areas that I was used to seeing when I was five or six years old and just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of these massive fences, um, you know, keeping wildlife off the highways and people away from the wildlife. It's pretty sad. I don't know what the future is going to hold for wildlife in Banff National Park. I don't think it's sustainable. So the federal legislation on firearms that was um, tabled earlier this year prohibiting uh, thousands of different um, variations of firearms in the country based on their kind of scary assault uh, you know, military look to the weapons that the uh, federal government's uh, program uh, our, our legislation, firearms legislation, has prohibited all these guns. So, so the the federal government recently has um, been tabling a little bit more information on the firearm gun buyback program. So, if you've got one of these guns, it's now prohibited. Um, you can. Uh, relinquish it to the government. I believe the federal law was watered down that it's not a mandatory um, relinquishing of a prohibited firearm. It's just that you can't use it. You can't take it to the range and shoot it or anything. You can just kind of keep it in your gun cabinet, I guess. So so the, uh, the government um, budget, parliamentary budget officer says that they figure that the government's gun buyback program is going to cost $756 million. So just to put this into perspective, this is a political move to buy back guns, of which most of them have never been used in a violent crime in Canada. Most of them are owned by people that are recreational sports shooters and are going to spend $756 million to buy those firearms back. The federal government was willing to spend $647 million on salmon and conservation, salmon conservation and restoration on the west coast of Canada. Parks Canada proposed to spend $25 million on a penning project to recover and reestablish the extirpated and endangered caribou that are in the mountain national parks. So caribou that are on the verge of extinction are only worth $25 million. Salmon that are on the verge of extinction and the closures of commercial fishing industry, uh, recreational fishing, and indigenous way of life around salmon fishing worth $647 million. But buying back a bunch of guns based on 
the way they look, $756 million. I think we've got our priorities wrong in this country. Over on the east coast of Canada, there's been um, quite a bit of uh, fervor going on uh, all winter long about um, fishers saying that the harp seal population off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador is uh, quote-unquote out of control and it's being blamed for uh, you know some of the declines in cod stocks. So Department of Fisheries and Oceans scientists recently kind of came out and made some um, statements about their analysis of the harp, harp seal populations. And they said harp seal populations in the region are within historic levels. Um, the harp seal population uh, had plummeted um, over the last century um, from the late 1800s up to the early 1960s because of uh, uh commercial hunting on the seals. Uh, but they say that they're kind of back to, to historical levels. Um, the DFO scientists said that the results of their predation studies, seal predation studies, found that the fisheries uh, and capelin, which is a small fish that um, the um, commercial fish uh, feed on, and uh, the salmon or the seals also feed on. So, so the seal predation study found that the fisheries and capelin availability were significant drivers of northern cod stocks, while seal consumption was not. So, basically, the federal fishery scientists are saying that uh, that the impacts to the northern cod stocks and the capelin uh, was not due to um, harp seal predation. And so they, they concluded in saying that a cull on harp seals, which is what some people on the East Coast are calling for, is a cull on seals. Uh, the scientists said that they wouldn't expect that that would have a measurable impact on cod recovery. So there was a, there was a study published. Um, it, was a, it was actually last year um, in 2020. I just kind of thought this would be an interesting story to talk about because, you know, here in British Columbia, anyways, we're sitting in this heat bubble, and um, one of the the risks, and I'm getting some reports uh, from people that have been out and about looking, is that uh, it looks like the berry crops are going to fail this year because of the extreme heat. So what that means is there is a likelihood that bears that need the fruit um, are going to struggle and they are going to start looking for food sources in places that they normally avoid, which is where people live. So in and around where, right where I live, uh, earlier this week, there's a black bear in the neighborhood, gone into a, ripped into a chicken coop, kind of went through my yard in the middle of the night, kept on, couldn't find anything. Um, other reports I'm seeing kind of uh, some grizzly bear activity and various places uh, in the southern part of BC where I live starting to become more of a problem. And that's probably uh, might be due to, to berry failures. So this whole topic of, um, you know, nuisance bears, conflict with bears, um, killing them versus trapping and relocating them. So, so I went back and I dug up this study that was uh, done. It was based on a bunch of data uh, that was collected in uh, the U.S., uh, looking at the uh, um, 
sort of the dynamics of uh, relocating uh, black bears, um, nuisance black bears. So they looked at all this data where uh, nuisance black bears were trapped and relocated anywhere from a couple kilometers to a couple hundred kilometers away from um, where they were uh, trapped. What they found was a small number of the bears, about 13% of them that were relocated, um, became nuisance bears at the new area that they were located to. They just wandered around till they found people and then kind of carried on. Um, being habituated to to what humans were doing. Uh, of those bears that sort of became reoffending nuisance bears, 64% um, of them um, actually found their way back to um, the original trapping site that they came from. So 60, 64% of the bears that, that reoffended uh, that became nuisance bears, not all the bears that were that were moved. So just a small portion of the bears that repeated their nuisance behavior, um, repeated their nuisance behavior, and then also found their way back to where they were trapped. Um, the scientists that did this study um, said that if a yearling bear um, was moved uh, about 50 to 60 kilometers from where it was trapped, and it wasn't being moved into an area that had a lot of agriculture lands. Um, they, they noted that if bears were moved into areas where there was lots of agriculture, they seemed to return more. But if they were moved into a, a forested landscape, um, their uh, rate of return back to their trap sites was lower. So they found that yearling bears move 50 to 60 kilometers kind of in forested landscapes. Um, they predicted about 10% of those yearlings would return to where they were trapped. And about 40% of adults uh, would return to where they were trapped, sort of regardless of how far they were moved or what type of landscape. So about 40% uh, of adult bears uh, would return to where they were trapped. Um, so whether you see that as good or bad, um, it's less than half of them um, are coming back to... to uh, where they were trapped, and then it's a small portion of those that returned that actually continued to, to be nuisance bears. So one of the things they found was that the the probability of um, the bear returning to it its trap site um, was definitely due to the distance that it was moved for yearlings, um, but not so much for adults. If the... Uh, the landscape around where the bear is relocated to within 75 to 100 kilometer radius around the new release site is mostly open agriculture land. Then more of those bears that were released in kind of those agriculture dominated landscapes were their probability of returning to their trap site was higher than if they were returned to a forced dominated landscape. So these same group of scientists uh, then looked at survival rates of these translocated uh, bears, and they published that in a study this year in 2021. And so the survival rate for translocated adult male black bears was about 40%. <clears throat> so, and about 56, almost 60% of the adult uh, females, that was their survival rate. Uh, but the survival rate for yearlings uh, was only around 40%. So the distance 
that they were relocated to, um, the further the distance, um, the greater their survival uh, rate was. So, so the distance that the bears are being moved and the type of landscape they're being moved into seems to have a great influence on both the survival rate of black bears and the probability that they're going to return. So they found that the survival rates of translocated bears um, was lower um, than bears living in the area, non-nuisance bears. So for whatever reason, um, a bear that was a problem bear that was relocated, um, it had a lower chance of survival than just the, the bears that were just doing normal bear things in the area that uh, the nuisance bears were, were moved to. So some impacts to bear survival uh, when they're moved, but it's not, um, it's not quite as bad, I guess, as what everybody thinks. So the scientists were noting that um, the translocation of, you know, problem black bears uh, can be a useful approach for, for mitigating um, human and bear conflict um, and then it doesn't always translocating bears doesn't always directly um, have a huge impact on their survival um, their survival is reasonably uh, good it appears so one of the things that the uh, the scientists said is that that if the focus in a given human habitated area is on reducing the incidence of human wildlife conflict by keeping attractants and food sources away that bears that come in and around people that are trapped and moved um, do better than when those bears become habituated and then are trapped and moved so if you can if you can catch a bear in and around people and move it away before it gets into garbage and foods and becomes a nuisance, it actually has a better chance of surviving in its new environment and a lower probability of returning or becoming a nuisance in the new environment. So kind of cool. Um, maybe a little contrary to what the uh, prevailing narrative has been out there about, you know, you can't move black bears because, you know, they just die when they, they uh, you know, they go or they become nuisance. So research is showing that um you know might be worth worth giving it a little bit more uh, of an effort in some places so there was a a study published recently by scientists from alberta and british columbia in the journal for nature conservation and uh, they're looking at uh, grizzly bears and grizzly bear populations in alberta and the goal of the paper uh, was to provide a framework for estimating the carrying capacity of threatened grizzly bear populations uh, in Alberta. And so what they did, the scientists did, is they looked at watersheds uh, in Alberta, in the Rockies of, of Alberta, and they did calculations of how much food is on the landscape to support grizzly bears and to support the recovery of grizzly bears which were identified as threatened uh, endangered species in in Alberta they found that fruit uh, being berries and meat were the most important food sources um, to grizzly bears and so it was a really cool study where they're they're basically kind of looking at the population of bears 
and the, the ability of the land to support X number of bears. And, and that is a tool, a framework that wildlife managers and conservationists can use when they're actively working to recovering uh, grizzly bear populations, um, because then they actually kind of have an idea of like, what's this watershed going to hold? How many grizzly bears can it hold? When are they going to be um, too many bears, you know, for the available amount of food, which is, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interpreting here, but then that creates the risk of bears getting pushed out of the watershed, being pushed into, you know, um, rural areas, onto farms, you know, where they're starting to, you know, cause problems with people because they're looking for food. So it's kind of a neat thing, you know, what, what can an individual watershed um hold for grizzly bears, you know, comfortably without there being problems. Uh, then, then they're able to, to, to look at, um, the population estimates in that watershed and say, are we, are we, uh, still below, um, the carrying capacity for grizzly bears in the watershed? Are we very close to it or have we exceeded it? Um, so it, it's a, it's a neat conservation tool. Um, I think it's kind of a neat tool to look at grizzly bear management from the perspective of incorporating hunting back into grizzly bear management. So through the use of science um, and this framework that these scientists presented that you can estimate what a given area of the land base can sustain or, or, or hold the number of grizzly bears that it can hold with the science that's estimating what the size of the population is, and then managers would then have the ability to, to, to say, you know, hey, before these grizzly bears become a problem, they're now starting to exceed their carrying capacity. Let's use hunting as a tool um, to keep the bears at the carrying capacity of the watershed so that they don't get pushed or move off into environments where they end up being killed because of uh, conflict. So, uh, that's just my interpretation on where the science could be used. I'm always kind of looking for uh, stuff out there and learning about um, what's being published about grizzly bears and kind of looking towards the future to see how um, hunting might fit into, you know, uh, a sustainable science-based conservation future for grizzly bears in Canada. Now, there was also another study on grizzly bears recently published uh, just this spring by... Um, some scientists from the University of British Columbia and uh, from the government of BC, one of the lead scientists, uh, Dr. Clayton Lamb, we've had on the Hunter Conservation podcast a couple of times talking about uh, grizzly bears. So in a bunch of the grizzly bear research that they were doing in southeastern British Columbia, um, you know, researching other things, they were, you know, capturing and putting collars on bears and, you know, studying their movements and their populations and bear fitness and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. They noticed from 59 grizzly bears that they had captured that about 7% of those bears, which is about four animals, were missing some or all of their toes on one of their front feet. Long story short, what they had discovered was these grizzly bears were getting their feet stuck in fur bear traps that were set at the start of the trapping season on November 1st. 
So the scientists said in this paper that um, about 50% of the grizzly bears in southeastern British Columbia, where I live, uh, 50% of the bears are still active on the landscape at the beginning of November. And I certainly can say anecdotally from my own experience, that is very true because hunting white-tailed deer in southeastern British Columbia through the entire month of November is a scary proposition in some places because there are grizzly bears following you around and kind of waiting for you to get a deer down and hopefully they can find you before... Um, you know, you drag the deer off into your truck and take off. Um, they, they might want to get the deer from you. So it, it, it is, they're out, they're very active into the snow. Um, so what the scientists said is the trap, what's happening is the trappers are setting their traps on the 1st of November. Bears are still highly active and they're finding these small fur bear traps and they're getting their feet stuck in them and they're losing you know, one of or all of the toes on one of their front paws. So they recommended that they delay the start of the trapping season to the 1st of December. And then most of the bears would have gone to Dan and you're going to avoid this, this conflict of, of bears getting amputated toes in, you know, Martin Lynx and Bobcat traps. So that was tabled um, to the government um, in the setting of hunting and trapping seasons, uh, the committees that review all of these various proposals. And um, the government rejected uh, the idea of delaying the start of the trapping season to December 1st uh, because the trappers um, were, were not in favor of doing that. One of, I, I reached out to Dr. Um, Lamb and kind of asked him, you know, what, what was going on there. Um, so from the trapper's perspective, um, quite a few trappers try to get their Martin quota for the year um, early in the season in November before snow starts to accumulate so much um, in places that they simply can't get back into the backcountry in their trapping territories. The risk of avalanches, you know, starts to uh, increase and become a danger to the trappers. So they like to try to get everything done early in the trapping season rather than delaying it to December. Makes things a little bit more difficult for them. So um, really challenging situation here. Um, So what I'm expecting is going to start happening here in the public forum is just sort of an outright call for the, the banning of trapping. This is another reason we need to ban fur-bearing trapping. It's because, look, you know, we're catching grizzly bears. Uh, 7% of the grizzly bears are, you know, losing, losing toes uh, because of the trappers. So the solution is, is just ban trapping. So I, I've, I've seen a few hints of that here and there in social media. I don't think that's the solution. I think the solution is um, trappers need some incentives and they need some support from government biologists to start figuring out ways um, to create trapping sets that are going to mitigate a grizzly bear getting his foot in these traps, Um, altering the size of the traps, um, how they're set up, whether they're up on platforms, you know, like whatever uh, it happens to be. Um, There's was some work in British Columbia uh, recently on developing traps that would allow a marten to get caught in a trap, but not a fisher. 
um, you know, based on the, the size of the head and the opening uh, in the trap box and stuff. So, so when people put their minds to these things, um, they can be solved. So initially the reaction was, uh, you know, from the trappers, it was, no, we don't want to take the hit and losing a month in the trapping season. Um, but I've yet to kind of see any initiative uh, hit the table on um, what people are going to start investigating, researching and testing to see if they can come up with a way to avoid uh, grizzly bears being um, caught and lo- losing toes. You know, at the end of the day, I think it's in the best interest of trappers to figure out how to fix this problem, because especially here in British Columbia, if you got to put this to a vote, are people going to be more concerned about the welfare of grizzly bears or the livelihood of fur bear trappers? So I think it's in the best interest of trappers to find the best possible solution uh, and get on this and demonstrate that they have solutions in place they've listened to the science and they are going to minimize the amount of grizzly bears losing toes in uh the small community in uh north eastern british columbia of hudson hope um there was a guy that was caught in an illegal hunting sting in 2017 um he got fined uh, $4,700 for pit lamping at nighttime. And this fella's got a kind of a string of violations attached to him. Uh, illegal fishing on the Peace River. Uh, when the conservation officers and the police service last summer um, uh, executed a search on his home, they actually discovered he had a live bear cub and a bunch of stolen property. Um, a live bear cub in a cage. I've heard some horrific stories coming out of northeastern BC of bear cubs being captured live and used in dog fights, um, kind of an underground ring um, for dog fights. So whether or not this is what this bear cub was being uh, kept captive for, didn't really say. Um, there was uh, as well a bunch of stuff uh i guess in this uh guy's possession in his home that uh was used for illegal hunting activities so recently british columbia's director of civil forfeiture said that it wants the province to pursue the seizure of a bunch of property of this individual that was charged with these uh illegal hunting and fishing and uh bear cub um, violations and they want his truck and boat and a number of uh, other uh, apparatuses that were used in these illegal uh, fishing and wild, wildlife violations uh, up in the Peace River so they're going after uh, they, they want the province to go after and seize uh, this fellow's jet boat uh, the trailer and the truck and you know a bun- bunch of stuff like that so um, yeah Pressure continues, a $4,700 fine on top of it. They're, uh, they're got a pretty good chance of seizing tens and tens of thousands of dollars worth of stuff that was used uh, in these fish and wildlife violations. So, man, doesn't pay to do stuff against the law of fish and wildlife, that's for sure.
So in 2010, the government signed, the government of Canada signed an international agreement called the Aki Agreement. And it was an international agreement that the signature countries had committed to protecting 17% of the land within their country and 10% of the oceans, uh, countries that had oceans, um, as a conservation measure. So recently, um, the Canada Parks and Wilderness Society um, published a report card on how Canada was doing um, living up to these commitments uh, in this 2010 International Conservation Agreement. So what they found um, is that uh, the province of Quebec and the federal government itself were actually doing a pretty good job of setting lands uh, aside for conservation. Uh, Alberta was noted as being the worst um, and Ontario and Newfoundland, uh, they noted in those provinces, there was actually like some rollbacks on protected lands. Saskatchewan and Manitoba were kind of like doing not so good. Uh, Manitoba, I believe in this published report, had actually sold off some public conservation lands. Um, so that kind of like brought their ranking down. The Yukon, Northwest Territories, British Columbia, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia were doing an okay job um, in setting aside uh, lands for conservation and meeting that 17% uh, target for land and 10% for oceans. Now, the reason that um, the Canada Parks and Wilderness Society said that this is kind of a really important milestone is that in this international agreement, the next international conservation target for the countries of the world is protection for conservation and biodiversity of 30% of land and oceans by the year 2030. So if countries like Canada and individual provinces are not meeting or they're rolling back on protected areas at a target of 17%, um, it's pretty clear that, you know, by 2030, uh, nine years from now, they're probably not going to meet 30% um, protected lands um, and oceans. British Columbia just announced uh, a whole bunch more protected areas being added to its existing network of parks and protected areas, about 200 additional hectares. A lot of it was taking in kind of unique um, ecosystems uh, and places where there was rare and endangered species and just kind of adding those on to existing uh, parks and protected areas. So 200 hectares is not a lot, um, but, you know, at a micro scale um, to, uh, you know, an ecosystem or habitat of some very tiny little um, endangered species. Uh, a few hectares here and there can make all the difference for biodiversity conservation. So up in the Arctic, um, hunters in Pond Inlet are asking the mining company that's on Baffin Land um, to or Baffin Island called Baffinland Iron Mining Corporation to not bring in its icebreakers this year 
to break up the ice so that the ships can move the ore off the island, uh, off Baffin Island, because the, of, the, of the evidence that's starting to pile up that's showing that these icebreakers uh, are harmful to the health and survival of the narwhal, which is one of the marine mammals that the Inuit people of the north actively hunt and depend on for food sustenance. So the hunters in uh, Pondland Inlet had noted that the narwhals in Eclipse Sound, uh, which is a body of water near the port um, that the mining company uses to ship its iron ore out, um, has dropped by almost half between 2019 and 2020. So in 2019, they estimated almost 10,000 narwhals in Eclipse Sound. And by 2020, that was down to about 5,000 narwhals. And, uh, and, and that was actually a study that the uh, hunting association, uh, Inuit hunters in Pond Inlet had actually hired some scientists to, to you know, do some population estimates. So it was a third party expert review of marine life that showed uh, about a, um, uh, this huge decline, almost half, half the narwhals had disappeared in, in one year. So the uh, hunters and trapper organization in Pond Inlet said that the decrease is, is due to the Mary River mine, um, the uh, iron mine, and that, that the mining company ships 6 million tons of iron ore a year from that mine. And so they're calling uh, on the mining company to take serious actions to stop um, the disturbance and uh, cancel its planned icebreaking activities uh, this, this coming winter. Uh, the hunting group said that the study that they commissioned showed that the stress level in narwhals is increasing and it's affecting the narwhal's health, uh, which many of the Inuit groups in the Arctic are saying are making the narwhals skinnier and less nourishing. So this is a huge, huge issue um, for Inuit people living in the Arctic and being able to hunt marine mammals because it is not that easy to get food into the Arctic. Um, you know, the types of food that their culture is not adapted to or use, used to. Um, people want to hunt and fish and live off the land like they have for generations. Companies want access to minerals and resources in the Arctic. And there's this conflict. Um, there's this conflict going on right now between an iron ore mine and narwhals and the Inuit's people ability to harvest big, healthy narwhals. So be interesting to see what happens. Essentially, the mining company would have to halt the movement of iron ore out of the mine, probably for a substantial portion of uh, the winter months. So I'm wondering if they're going to be able to accommodate that. I'll keep you up to date when I know more. So scientists are reporting the presence of a potentially fatal parasitic disease that's come from Europe, spread by dogs, has now taken root in Alberta. And Alberta is now the North American hotspot for this parasitic flatworm in people. 
So there was only two cases of human beings uh, contracting this rare parasitic flatworm in North America. One was in 1928 and the other was in 1977. But now there's quite a number of cases in Alberta, um, in Saskatchewan and BC of people getting uh, this parasite. So this parasite has become uh, widely established across the prairie provinces. Um, it takes the form of a tiny tapeworm in canines, so dogs, coyotes, or foxes. And it's relatively harmless to the canines. But when a rodent eats the canine's feces and they get the eggs from this parasite, then the parasite evolves into a different form and it creates a different disease in the rodents and it develops a deadly tumor parasitic growth in the liver of the rodents. So then if the rodent is eaten by a fox or a coyote or a dog, then the canine gets that potentially fatal form of the parasitic tapeworm. So what's happening is potentially people's pets <clears throat> have ingested this secondary form of the tapeworm and they're passing it on to their human owners. Uh, the study showed that of like, I think it was the 17 cases uh, in Alberta of people having this um, more virulent form of the tapeworm, uh, 14 of the cases people uh, own dogs. Now the other place they suspect that people could be ingesting this is when coyotes or foxes are frequenting um, areas in your yard, like your gardens and whatnot. Um, and then if they're peeing on stuff, which dogs like to do, uh, or pooping in your garden, then potentially people are going in, picking, you know, the lettuce and all that kind of stuff and uh, getting, uh, getting this parasite. So what's happening in the life cycle um, is human beings are kind of inserting themselves into the canine portion of of uh, the life cycle of this tapeworm is sort of replacing the rodent. Um, so if people get the secondary form of this parasite, this tapeworm, it can get into their liver, it can develop a tumor, um, which can kind of sit there for a long time and not necessarily be noticed. Um, but scientists are saying that maybe after about 10 or 15 years, it could actually uh, be fatal to people. There is apparently a drug for it, um, but it's not available in Canada. Uh, the advice is um, to avoid the parasite, basically good hygiene practices like wash your hands after handling your dog. If you've suspected that the dog's eaten a rodent um, or been in a dog park or area where there's coyotes around, um, good sanitation in your home uh, and yourself and thoroughly washing produce that's coming uh, from, you know, the ground like lettuce and mushrooms uh, as well out of your gardens, especially if you think you got coyotes in and around where you are. So on the topic of coyotes, so more stuff in the news going on uh, in Alberta uh, around the cities of people being uh, attacked and bitten by coyotes and more going on in Stanley Park in Vancouver here in British Columbia. So 20, about 20 people have been attacked by coyotes in Stanley Park since December. 
And just recently, uh, this week, that included a two-year-old child. Three people last week uh, were attacked and bitten by coyotes uh, in one day. So they're continuing to have significant problems with coyotes in Stanley Park in Vancouver. Uh, I, they don't say a whole lot in these news stories if they're actively in there, um, you know, trapping or killing these coyotes in Stanley Park. Uh, in Alberta, in the cities, they are. They got contractors that are out hunting down uh, coyotes in the urban environment and lethally removing them. Uh, but it, it's pretty hush-hush in Stanley Park. Uh, seems to be a lot of stuff about how to avoid coyotes, um, dawn and dusk, um, closing down trails, putting up signs and stuff. But there doesn't seem to be a whole lot about whether um, they're actually in there trying to remove uh, these coyotes. So, um, yeah, so the problem's going on. People are getting getting bit. You know, why are coyotes biting, biting people? Like, you know, these stories are sort of like coyotes are like darting out and jumping on people and biting them and, you know, and, and these types of things. Or one fella like had an accident on his bike and then a coyote come whipping out of the bushes and jumped on him. So, you know, are they being predators? I doubt it. Are they protecting young dens, food sources? Maybe that's a little bit more probable. They're making a living. Coyotes are making a living, living in Stanley Park. There's squirrels, there's birds, there's eggs, there's geese, there's all this, you know, good ecosystem to get coyote food out of, uh, as well as, you know, garbage that people leave behind. And so they might have a vested interest in protecting that. And what we might see as an unprovoked attack might be just a bit of a warning from the coyotes getting telling people to back off so it's kind of interesting in the urban environment people are laying claim to stanley park um you know complaining about the coyotes and the canada geese uh, but the canada geese and the coyotes are saying this is ours and you're not supposed to be here so very interesting um dynamic going on in stanley park who belongs to stanley park who has the right to be there people or wildlife apparently one of the the people that got bit last week uh, was a man doing yoga in Stanley Park so don't want to make light of someone being bit by a wild animal because of the things the diseases that you might get from it but you know if you're doing yoga in a public park maybe you deserve to get bit I don't know. Do your yoga at home. All right, everybody. You're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.